0: You don't want to be crazy and you don't do want to be crazy to clarify yes, no crazy we hope this helps hello and welcome to team West Covina a crazy ex-girlfriend podcast I'm your host Paisley, and today is Sunday july 14th, 2019 this is episode 14 of the podcast and we're discussing the episode that text was not meant for Josh season 1 episode 11. Before we go into the episode, I just wanted to say thank you to our latest patron, Steen. I'm so happy that people are finding and supporting the podcast, even after Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is over. It definitely inspires me to keep finding time to create episodes. And speaking of time, I'll go into this a little bit more at the end of the podcast, but uh, I have been a little bit busier than usual lately. Um, the last two months have been my biggest travel months of the year this year, and so I haven't actually been home a whole lot. And when I have, I've been working on my business and a lot of things uh, that go along with that. So, But I, I did get concert tickets for Rachel's upcoming shows that she's doing. I'll be at the Chicago Rachel Show and possibly the milwaukee one but it's looking a little less likely for milwaukee because i already have concert tickets for something else that day and they rescheduled it on us i i have milwaukee tickets right now but i you know the day they rescheduled it too i already have a concert so i may just take the refund on that i'll just have to see how it goes but if anybody will be there uh, feel free to send me a message and let me know i'd love to meet up with other fans So going into that text wasn't meant for Josh. It aired on February 8th, 2016. It was written by Elizabeth Kiernan-Averick and directed by Daisy Von Schurler-Meyer. And the Netflix synopsis is, Rebecca accidentally sends Josh a text professing her love for him, then has to break into his house and delete it before he gets home. As always, there's a spoiler warning. If you haven't seen the whole series, we are going to be talking about it in depth and we might reference things that happen in later episodes so just so you guys are aware going forward this is one of my favorite season one episodes i have to say i would say this one in the camp episode for sure we'll see what else as i go through another rewatch here it opens with scott and paula in father bra's office and they're having a, a sort of therapy session Scott mentions Paula came home a couple weeks ago. I remember she was all dressed up and said she was unhappy. So this is a nod to when Paula came home from the jazz club and hotel where she spent time with Calvin and almost slept with him. She was wearing that red dress. She was all dressed up. So they really keep the continuity with that. Father Bra thinks Paula is self-sabotaging, probably because at this point she doesn't believe that her marriage can be saved. I also felt like Father Bra seemed a little... Stitzier or kookier in this scene than in other ones he's given like better and more serious advice to josh and we've seen him really present with valencia in season four so i'm not sure exactly what was going on with him today uh but it's funny because in the scene itself he actually says his aim is really off today when we first see rebecca she's putting her shoes on right next to the happily ever after rocks that becomes so important later in this episode they actually have a shot of that for a split second and pan up I think that's so smart to establish it ahead of time, even if it's a little subliminal. Greg stops over at Rebecca's apartment, and he's fishing to see if Rebecca cares that he's with Heather. She does ask about it, but it's not clarified until later in the episode whether she's actually jealous or just misses the attention and having a singular focus. I've definitely seen girls behave like that in real life when they don't even like a guy, but they're used to the guy liking them, and their pride can't handle it when the guy goes for someone else instead. Rebecca may also dislike that her alternate option is off the table now. Next we see Rebecca at Boba and you'll notice that the Olsen twin size is actually humongous when Rebecca orders a drink there. When Rebecca is reciting her speech for what she might say about her most recent case, she mentions that the defendant is liable for court costs and interest accrued in the period of June 2013. So as far as the timeline goes, we No, it's later than that but it doesn't help us determine whether it makes sense for the show to start in 2015 or 2016 which seem to be the two main contenders we see rebecca keeps struggling to hold back her i love yous throughout the episode first up she laughs really hard at josh's joke and says i love you your sense of humor and just the way she hugs him how she enjoys it so much it's such a good yet frustrating feeling her feelings are practically coming off her face and out of her voice and she's just having more and more trouble hiding how important he is to her when rebecca is meeting with lawyers at the office the address given for the defendant is 533 east cameron so that's yet one more thing on east cameron they're running joke if you listen to what the lawyer is saying in the background it's that the rent payment is due by the fifth of each month and any day beyond the fifth a fee of thirty five hundred dollars will incur that's more than most people's rent Just in case you forgot what the infamous text said, it basically summed up Rebecca's entire story. Just saw Josh. He looked so hot that I almost died. I love him so much and I think he loves me now too. God, I can't wait until we're finally together and I can stop lying and tell him I love him and moved here for him. Oh my gosh, that's the worst nightmare to send all of that to the person in question. It's like accidentally letting somebody inside your head when you didn't want them to know. And then to have it happen at work, and she's panicking. They do a really great job of slowing down time and distorting people's voices to kind of capture the fear and panic. I really liked probably the direction of this episode, a lot of the camera choices. I noticed a lot of those types of stylistic things here too. And good on Paula for setting boundaries when she tells Rebecca she can't go help her break into Josh's house because she's having dinner with Scott. Of course Paul is dying to be a part of this for the adventure, and she also has a deep craving to help Rebecca, but she doesn't bail on her husband. I also really love that Rebecca casts the lawyers in her musical fantasy. They become the soundtrack cheering her on. It's really funny that rather than dishing out disapproving comments, they all completely get it and support that Rebecca's personal life trumps work at that very moment. Casa de la Flores is where Josh and Valencia live. We see Rebecca in front of Josh's apartment, She says through text, I am fake texting, so I look like I'm waiting for my friend. Then she gets in the door when someone else comes out of it. It actually reminds me of me trying to see Rebecca's apartment in West Covina, and when someone went through the locked gate, I ended up going in too. In the middle of the text emergency song, we see the ghost of Steve Jobs, and he says, Technology is slowly alienating everyone from their loved ones. When you said a few words to the wrong recipient, and it destroys your entire life... This is basically part of the premise that Rachel and Aline base the show on, that technology has affected our romantic life so much, whether it's texting or social media or how we see what everybody else is doing and get a little bit more FOMO, more comparing goes on because you see more pictures from other people's lives and videos. And then the way people present their digital selves are sometimes different than how it's really going for them in their real life. The next scene, we get to see Josh and Valencia's apartment and they have a shit ton of owls. Um, I'm not sure which one likes owls. I'm going to assume Valencia because she's probably the one who decorated, but they have the owl outside the door, which everybody knows from the song, but then they also have an owl hanging by the front door inside, and there's an owl sitting on the side table next to the couch. So, tons of owls. Rebecca needs to break the passcode to get into Josh's phone. In reality, I feel like this might be an even harder part of trying to delete this text, but of course she knows the last four of his social security number. As it turns out, Valencia's birthday is the passcode, and we learn that it's May 5th, 1988. This means she's a Taurus, for one thing, which is ruled by Venus and actually makes sense for a yoga instructor or somebody in touch with their body. She's also got that stubborn streak and enjoys beautiful material luxuries. Also, we can comment on the timeline a little bit more if we know Valencia's birthday. So if it's 2015 when the show begins, not counting camp, that would make Valencia 27. If it began in 2016, that would make Valencia 28 here in season 1. If we were past her birthday this year, which we may not be, but we know it must have already passed from 2015 to 2016 or 2016 to 2017, because we already had the Christmas episode earlier in season one. And then you've got to look at how that ties in with when they had their high school reunion several years late and things like that. All these little things do make it challenging to fit the timeline together, as we know Josh Valencia, Father Bra, and some of the others went to high school together and were all part of the class reunion. We know Josh is 16 in 2005 at Camp Canyon Grove, meaning he would have been born in 1989, and he's a Pisces, so that would mean last half of February or early March, 89. Rebecca would have been born right after him in late late March or early April. But Valencia would already be 17 by the time Rebecca and Josh go to Camp Canyon Grove, assuming it takes place in summer, so that implies she was a year ahead of Josh in school. Yet they both seem to be part of the class that had the reunion. The timeline will continue to be an ongoing thorny issue, I'm sure. I appreciate that Rachel kind of carved out a timeline at the end of the series and decided that officially it starts in 2016, other than the flashback, but with things that actually get mentioned in the show itself, it it is kind of hard to um, reconstruct the timeline after the fact, I think. I think when we look at Rachel's timeline that she did at the end of the show, it's probably what she intended and what she would have done had the timeline been planned out beforehand. We also see Rebecca's chagrin at Josh using Valencia's birthday as a passcode. It makes her think that he really loves her. And that makes things so much harder than if Josh wasn't in love, but stayed with her anyway. Regardless though, even being in love with someone doesn't mean they're right for you or that you're right for them. There's this ongoing tension and relief throughout the episode that really drives the drama. Rebecca is super panicked about the text, then experiences immense relief when it's deleted. Then she opens the door, and Josh is standing there, so the tension wraps up again. Then she gets through a break-in story, and all of a sudden Josh is comforting her. Relief. But he decides he needs to take her back to her house and check on the broken glass situation. More tension again. Once Scott throws the rock through the window, we experience relief. Then Josh questions why the break-in happened more tension Rebecca is able to placate him and get him to agree to have fondue we get back to relief after that Josh tells her he called the cops though so once more we've got tension and relief after Rebecca is able to lawyer her way out of filing a police report we think we're finally out of the woods but then Josh discovers the rock that says ever starts to question everything and leaves abruptly and we're back to tension again we go through this tension and relief cycle at least six times in this episode, which is part of the reason it's so well written. I can imagine what it's like to live this because I feel like I've been there when it comes to these heavy ups and downs They'll really mess with your mind. In the next scene, we see Scott and Paula trying really extra hard at dinner. Scott suggests holding hands, which is what she wanted for so long. She says in the Calvin episode that it's been years since somebody's held her hand. But in reality, it turns out to be kind of awkward and not romantic. We cut back to Rebecca and Josh and Rebecca keeps saying, slow down, slow down, as she struggles to come up with a lie that Josh might buy. She continues to do this throughout the episode when talking with the cop. We hear the little sound effect that means she's lying when she hears Josh say break in, and this gives her the idea for her cover story. Josh totally buys that the door to his apartment was unlocked because he forgets to lock it sometimes. He asked if he left the fridge open, too, and Rebecca actually rolls with this and finds a way to take credit. She says, yes, you did, and I closed it and saved a lot of cold cuts, which leads Josh to actually thank her for breaking in. Classic Rebecca. There's this great cork metaphor for Paula and Scott's marriage when they're opening up the wine bottle. This is pretty great. When Scott tries to open it up, he only comes up with half a cork. And Paula says, ugh, just push it through. And Scott's saying, no, no, we can save the cork. You know, we can, we can save our marriage. And Paula says, no, we can't. Be realistic, okay? We just got to push the cork through and drink the wine with the dirty little pieces of cork in it. Is it great? No, but that's life. You can tell she's just bristling with anger and frustration. She kind of thinks, you know, we all just have to get through this. We're a family. We're married. We're not going to, like, make some big change or get divorced, but we just kinda gotta get through this, even if it's not ideal. Scott takes a knife and I believe he's listening to her and trying to push the cork through as if they're both giving up. That's when the phone rings and Rebecca sends them on a mission. You can see how Paul is addicted to Rebecca's love life when she lies to Scott about why she has to answer the phone. First she says it could be about the kids, then she says it's her mother. Even though she agreed to put the phone down at the beginning of the meal, by the end she's giving up, thinking their marriage is just never going to fulfill her, and she wants to get back to Rebecca's fantasy love life. I absolutely love how Rebecca makes no sense on the phone and doesn't explain why she needs Paula to throw a rock through the window, but Paula immediately says, copy that, and is on it without question. That's friendship. Scott thinks Paula might be having an affair, and that's why she's getting phone calls all the time. It's interesting that she keeps this part of her life with Rebecca to herself at first, presumably because she doesn't think you'll understand, or worse, think it's stupid. I love how Scott gets excited about Paula's adventure, even though he doesn't know what's going on, and he's so excited when he helps her find a rock. Next, we cut to Rebecca and Josh at her house, and Scott has thrown the rock through the window, and... Rebecca comes home to find it and when she's talking to Josh she says there's only one Josh Chan and he says actually there's a lot of Josh Chans. I always think that's such a funny line. Paula actually confesses that she almost had an affair with a client and Scott takes this in stride rather than trying to make her the bad guy admitting that he almost slept with Myth- Misty from shipping. This is interesting because it isn't Tanya. Apparently Scott has more than one potential candidate at work. Both he and Paula recognize that they're in the same place mentally, and it's pretty amazing that they don't fight over this. It might have been hypocritical to get into an argument about it, since they're technically more or less even, but all the same, people aren't always rational about these things. Paula tells Scott that she doesn't want another man, and that's an interesting insight considering how she feels about her marriage. My guess would be then that at once upon a time, or maybe when they first got together, there was all this excitement and romance to some degree and that she's missing that and she wants that from scott but she doesn't think she's going to get it rather than she's done with him and she wants to go get it from a fresh new person it almost seems like that was a coping device some of the stuff with calvin rather than like the actual impetus that's not always the case for everyone so if if that is what's true for paula it makes sense why they are able to reconcile and and continue to work it out later on i absolutely love that paula and scott go all the way through the crazy ex-girlfriend theme song but in spoken word and believably too kudos to them that was so funny i always laugh at that part when i come back to it it really worked actually within the context of the scene So Josh helps Rebecca clean up the broken glass, and I noticed that he really does love to list things, which is mentioned in a much later episode when he thinks he might have a disorder of some kind, but we do see him do this multiple times. He says, I've got gloves for every situation. I mean, cleaning, baseball, golfing, driving, go-karts, boxing, and it's so ironic that it's the happily ever after rock that causes all these problems. That was pretty brilliant. Josh turns it over, sees it says ever, and then Rebecca automatically glances towards the floor where the other rocks are. If she hadn't done that, perhaps Josh wouldn't have put all the pieces together. Rebecca is trying so hard for her happily ever after, trying to make sure it's not spoiled, and yet she ends up making a mess anyway. Either way, Josh would have realized she was keeping something from him. Even if he had seen the original text, that would have been a confession to the other stuff she's keeping from him so it's almost like she can't win as Josh turns to go Rebecca starts to say Josh I love you again but finishes with I love that you came to my rescue tonight he accepts this but you can see him roll his eyes as he walks out the door when the fondue guy comes in he talks about how they threw in some extra strawberries and chocolate and Rebecca gets a clear picture of what could have been how fun and romantic the night could have gone she abhors missed opportunities The fondue place, by the way, is called Fondue Me. Like, fondle me? And Rebecca, who has a habit of talking to delivery guys, says to him, Moments ago, he held me in his arms. And then, just now, he could barely look me in the eye. All of my dreams may have just been shattered. Like the glass window, of course. But she says may have been shattered. There's additional anxiety because Rebecca doesn't know if it's all over. She doesn't know if she ruined everything. It's ambiguous and confusing for both of them. As we launch into Rebecca's signature song, You Stupid Bitch, she says, it's so wonderful to be back here, even though I'm here singing this song a lot. So she really indulges in self-pity and self-hate over and over again, and it's a constant dialogue in her head that she comes back to again and again, but she kind of turns it into this fantasy number as if an entire audience of people are hearing her and listening to her and singing along. There are so many reasons why this is the signature song of the series. It's about Rebecca's relationship with herself. And that's ultimately what the whole show is about in many ways. And she's being really vulnerable and honest, even if the way she pictures herself isn't always accurate, or even if she's seeing herself in a more extreme or skewed fashion than she needs to the guilt and the shame and the struggle is just so real and you can just tell how painful it is for her and she feels like there's nothing she can do to fix it like she always ends up back here and then once again we see greg lurking around rebecca's patio door rebecca throws her arms around greg as soon as he walks in she had already thanked josh for rescuing her that night and here it's clear that she sees greg as her rescuer Even just the fact that Greg is Josh's best friend makes him familiar and another link to Josh for her. She knows Greg has feelings for her and she appreciates him as a person, but I don't think she's truly interested in him romantically yet. Right now, as she says, she just wants someone to stay with her and doesn't wanna be alone. It's not specific to Greg. She does recognize that somehow you're always here when I need you, but normally that's when she needs comfort post-Josh. In a movie, this is the guy she'd end up with, because he's always been there for her. But it's not always that simple in real life. Just because he's always there for her doesn't mean she can magically turn on romantic feelings for him. It's also pretty funny-slash-sad that Rebecca asks Greg if he's hungry because she says, I've got some fondue that's clumping together. Greg is literally sloppy seconds, as he points out when he sees Josh's name on the bag. The fondue guy made such a big deal about how they keep the cheese from congealing long enough for her and Josh to enjoy it, but by the time Greg comes around, it's in clumps, which is a pretty good metaphor for the situation. He's leftovers, essentially. Rebecca is left by both Josh and Greg in this episode after she already pulled some super elaborate stunts. It's like reliving the rejection of her father walking out twice in one day. It's a really deep trigger for her and brings her to a particularly dark place, especially since... She once again feels like it's her fault. Interestingly, Scott is on the side of Greg saying they might make a good couple. Maybe she should give him a chance. It makes sense that he would root for the underdog who feels like their potential partner might just be settling for him. It's probably relating to Greg a little bit. Paula and Scott are so adorable when they're discussing Rebecca's story. They're both getting so excited about it. And their connection is just natural and free-flowing and just having a night where they've made a connection like that makes all the difference in the world it's not forced by this point at the boba place when paula meets up with rebecca i love how paula talks about how rebecca's on a journey and there's going to be peaks and valleys and maybe even a long dry flat plateau because paula herself has been through that with scott and her marriage Anybody who's in it for the long haul is going to see those ebbs and flows in the relationship or the journey to the relationship and being able to hang in there and recognize that it's not all going to be peaks is super important. It's also nice to see Paula so happy and optimistic for once. Paula tells Rebecca, know that everything is going to be okay. And if it's not, we will make it okay. She's such a good best friend. Then there's a tag at the end with Harry Spencer, the lawyer, confessing that he left his wife for a prostitute, same as the guy who created the butter ads. I'm not sure where they did it again, but interestingly, the guy who created the butter ads is named Gary, which rhymes with Harry. And I think there is more mention of this as we get later in the series. Before we move on to the next segments, if you'd like to support the podcast, feel free to donate as little as $2 on Patreon under Team West Covina. There'll be links in the show notes. It really helps cover the yearly hosting costs. It costs about $100 a year to keep these episodes up, so it would be great to break even on that sort of thing. If anyone's able to rate or review the podcast, that would be a huge help towards growing the audience and helping it rank higher in search results. Even if you could just throw a few stars our way, that does mean a lot and seems to make a difference. We've actually gotten more downloads now since the Show has been over, it's kind of picked up as far as people listening to podcasts and stuff, which kind of makes sense because everyone's missing the show, and so getting more content can be really important around this time. So, in our Who Done It segment, we're looking at how many times Rebecca initiates plans to obtain Josh and how many times Paula instigates them. In this episode, not too much because most of what we're doing is Rebecca's trying to pull some damage control. Rebecca asks if Josh wants some wine, and then if he'd like to get some fondue, so she decides to turn the disaster into an opportunity. So this episode, Rebecca instigated once and Paula zero. The total so far is Rebecca has instigated 14 times with plans to get Josh, and Paula has started eight of them. Our Ring of Fire segment was pretty busy this week, actually. I remember that there were a lot of fire references in, like, the really early episodes, like the one where Rebecca throws a party, but I didn't remember that there were so many in this one. First, Greg mentions some succulents, some candles, you decorated when he visits Rebecca's place. And then when Josh talks about how much fun they had at camp, Rebecca says, that campfire was so nice. Even in Rebecca's text, she says, just saw Josh, he looked so hot, but she used the fire emoji. And Connie, the lawyer, says there's only one option here. Witness protection program. Burn it all down. Start a new life. Holy foreshadowing. That's so interesting that it comes up this early. I mean, Rebecca did try to burn it all down and start a new life in the past, as we find out later. And even in You Stupid Bitch, Rebecca sings, you're just a lying little bitch who ruins things and wants the world to burn. So that's a solid five fire references right there. Our suicide watch segment, surprisingly there's nothing, but you can see how the you stupid bitch feeling could lead Rebecca to that dark place. Nothing for Boo's Clues either, although I bet Greg did drink some after he got home from Rebecca's at the end. In our Nailed It segment, we look at the color-coded nail polish that Rachel sort of implemented behind the scenes. It's supposed to indicate Rebecca's mood. She's wearing black nail polish for most of the episode here. During the pivotal day when she accidentally sends the text, when she breaks into Josh's apartment and makes up a break-in story of her own, it's all black nail polish. And typically, that means that she's pulling some kind of deception or is up to no good. I think Rebecca has dark blue nail polish on in the last scene instead of black. It's pretty dark, but I'm thinking this must indicate how despairing and self-pitying she feels in that moment. In the Music Notes segment, we look at what the song parodies were based on or inspired by. We've got three songs in this episode. Wow, back in the day when they had three songs per episode. Amazing. We start with Emergency, and I, I don't think I ever noticed that they're performing in White Feather before because they really make it look like a rock show. After the lawyers, plaintiff, and defendant finish their song, a bunch of papers shoot out from the copier, and the drum has a gavel on it. According to... The songwriters on the Spotify commentary, this song originally started out as Thank You Technology, which would have been a parody of We Are The World. But the one-upmanship idea was Aline and Jack Dolgen kicking ideas around on set. Adam talked about how important it was to funnel the emotion into the moment. He told Rachel it wouldn't make sense to bring down the energy and do a depressing song, that it should have more urgency, and that was such a good call. Adam Schlesinger has really contributed a lot to the songs, but also just smoothing out and and editing the songs and, and making them the best they can be. Then we also get Where is the Rock? Aline wrote the lyrics for this, and Adam finished it. They liked the pun on 80s rock and a literal rock, and it's parroting Twisted Sisters' I Wanna Rock with a similar melody, and they both have the band shouting rock in the background. By the way, in case you don't know, the person who played Connie, one of the lawyers, the blonde lawyer, she is actually played by Renée Goubet's wife, and Renée Goubet is, of course, Father Bra. So really neat connections there. Our last song for the episode is You Stupid Bitch, the shards of glass in the background are part of the chandelier behind Rebecca as she's singing. In the Spotify commentary, Rachel Bloom talks about how she was drinking and watching What Will It Be being filmed. And she was kind of going, Greg, it's a dramatic song. Rebecca should have a dramatic song, too. And it, Shards and Lies was the first pass of this. That's what it was originally called. And Rachel said she was really nervous about sending the song in because it's so personal to her. It was apparently originally Pages and Pages, which I would love to read, and Adam kind of gave her a condensed version of it. It's also parroting Bernadette Peters doing a show, and the dress Rebecca wears even mirrors one of hers. Rachel fought to keep the line, Poopy Little Slut In, which is so on brand for her. Next, we move into the theme of the episode, and I would say the biggest one is trying to force a relationship rather than letting it happen naturally. Both Rebecca and Paula are in situations like that in this episode. Midway through, after their rock adventure, Scott and Paula are standing at the counter eating sandwiches or burritos, and they're so much happier than when they were forcing a formal steak dinner at the table. Meanwhile, while the initial chain of events was kicked off by an accident, as far as the text goes, the accident involved Rebecca describing her internal plan to land Josh. She has to do a ton of damage control to keep that plan in motion. All the interactions with Josh, the things she says to him, inviting him to have wine and fondue, it's all calculated, whether beforehand or spontaneously. It's all designed to lead where? To Josh cheating on Valencia? To Josh confessing feelings? He already kind of did that, at least when it comes to admitting that he's attracted to her. Maybe she just wants him to say, I'm breaking up with Valencia and then we can be together. You know what exactly is she looking for from him at that moment but that's also something Josh has to evaluate within his own relationship independently of Rebecca whether or not he's gonna break up with Valencia it's true that Rebecca gets him to think about it sooner than he would have otherwise though and it was more than time for that to happen nevertheless trying to force a relationship never seems to work as well as letting it happen naturally and organically And it is frustrating when people get stuck. Josh is stuck. He's stuck in this relationship with Valencia. He kind of knows it, but he's kind of in denial about it. And waking him up isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it is hard to get it to work out before people are ready. Even if it's not right. Even if it's just kind of making it worse for everybody for him to stay with Valencia. And that's tough. The other theme of the episode is settling. As we see discussed a lot throughout season one, Greg is questioning whether he's settling for Heather because, as he points out, you know, his girlfriend is 20 feet through that wall, but he's over here with Rebecca instead. And that tells him something, even if he doesn't like it. Even though this is off screen, we know Josh and Valencia are kind of settling for each other, as it turns out. We don't know Valencia is settling until maybe more like season four when we really get her backstory, but they are both settling for each other. And then Paula's really questioning whether she's settling with Scott or not because she thinks their relationship is so hopeless. And when compared to Rebecca's idealistic love, you know, it doesn't even hold a candle as far as she's concerned. I mean, when Paula and Scott come off their rock adventure, it's almost like they had a great first date or like they hadn't seen each other in you know several years and they got back together and are going out again it's it's fresh it's it's being refreshed by doing something novel and different and exciting we have our poll results from the last episode which was a while ago the question was if young paula's life was turned into a web series what memory would you most like to see Around hundred people voted, we had a lot of participation. Uh twenty five percent said they'd like to see Paula's high school relationship with Jeff, twenty eight percent said they'd like to see period sex at a party, which she references, and forty seven percent said they'd like to see her breaking in and bed bombing various guys, which she does mention as a throwaway line in one of the episodes. So what that meant was she'd break into a guy's house, get into bed naked and wait for them to come home. Paula was so adventurous back in the day and now still now our last podcast question was what's your take on greg's feelings for heather and ashley and how that ties in with the feelings he later has for rebecca why does he choose heather over ashley who he's been pining for since kindergarten this is the girl he meets at the party that daryl throws And we got a few really great responses from Reddit, so edited for time, but here's some of the most interesting comments. JJ Dasher on Reddit says, "Well, Heather has some keen insights into Greg's psychology, she's a generally insightful person after all. He really doesn't have those insights into her. It's one-sided. Also, Greg's got a quirkiness that he probably suppresses around Heather because he's trying to match her coolness, but it's a part of the character that I've always thought matched up nicely with Rebecca. He's the only other character who does weird accents or cites obscure facts or comes up with weird metaphors, the way Rebecca does, for example. I don't see Heather goofily dancing with Greg at the Taco Festival or geeking out about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire or watching the dog show. The first time I watched the series, she says, I thought of Ashley as Greg's Josh. In my mind, Greg calls Ashley up during the flash forward year while Rebecca's off writing, this is in season four and they go on a few dates but it fizzles out pretty quickly once he realizes he's evolved past high school so thanks jj dasher for that comment i think that was really insightful and it is really interesting that greg can be psychological he can pick up on what other people are thinking and doing and what their motives are but he doesn't apply that to heather it's almost like he doesn't even notice enough to do it he sees it in rebecca he sees it in himself he Kind of psychoanalyzes Josh, but he it never even occurs to him to think of her on this deeper level. We've got another comment from Giant Giraffe Toy on Reddit who says they establish Greg's commitment phobia in the previous episode, so that when they introduce it again at the end of season one, we can recognize that it's a pattern of his behavior rather than a problem specific to the relationship between him and Rebecca. I like what J.J. Dasher says above about Ashley being Greg's Josh Chan, but I think the episode also puts Heather as the Greg in their dynamic, as she is the one pursuing and pushing the relationship, despite knowing he's not really ready for that, and also he's into someone else. That's brilliant. I totally agree with all of that. It is really good that they establish Greg's commitment early on so we know it's not just Rebecca and that he really did want to be with her at the end of season one. There's some really nice development there. And yeah I never really thought about Heather being the Greg when you look at that triangle between Rebecca and Greg and Heather but she is. I mean she's cool so we don't necessarily see it as much with her. She, she doesn't seem quite as needy as Greg but I have always said that Heather's the one pursuing this relationship. It's really not Greg so much. Heather just decides that Greg is a neat guy and and she wants to get to know him and she just goes for it. But Greg is always a little distracted and, and unsure, even though they do have fun together. So on to the poll question of this week, best food or drink metaphor of the episode. We've got a few, Paula and Scott saving the cork, as in saving their marriage, Or clumpy cheese, leftovers, equaling Greg, who's just sloppy seconds in this situation. We also have a couple podcast questions for this week. One is, how do you think Paula and Scott first met and got together? That's something I don't think we ever got to hear much about, and I'm really curious at what point and how that happened. The other podcast question is, if you'd accidentally sent a text like the one Rebecca wrote, how would you handle it? So if you'd like to answer those podcast questions or vote in the poll, please head over to my social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all under Team West Covina. You can also email me at paisley.podcasts at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review if you get the chance. And if you don't plan to join us for a Copian's Corner, thanks for listening. Welcome to A Copian's Corner, where we discuss our personal connections to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and how it's affected us. I do want to encourage anyone who has a story or wants to talk about the impact crazy ex-girlfriend has had on them to contribute with a story or send something to me through email I feel like I hear so many of those stories online or in, in person when I meet fans and you guys really have some great stories to tell I know it's a little hard to share something that personal on a public forum but I would be very happy if anybody wanted to contribute anything if it matches up with a certain episode and you want to send it in for that episode that's cool too So I've just been really busy with um, my newer business and I'm also starting a new side job next week that I've been kind of prepping for and the new side job is kind of connected to what I'm doing for the business which was something that was a hobby and then kind of turned into something more and I'm really passionate about it and so I'm really excited to be able to, to do it professionally along with my regular job. And I've also been doing a lot of traveling. I was in Oregon for a while. I was in Portland, and then I road tripped down the Oregon coast. And my rental car broke down, so that was fun. (laughs) Um, It was a a little scary because it was kind of in the middle of nowhere, and I didn't get cell service right there either because it's kind of a dead zone. And I had to have a tow truck drive me to a city an hour away, and it it was a, a big ordeal actually, even just to get a replacement car was really difficult out there. But it all worked out and I was able to do my full road trip and see a lot of animals and sea creatures. I ran into a baby harbor seal on the beach just hanging out and waiting for its mom to come back, which they usually do at high tide. And it was just a really nice retreat sort of vacation where I really had a lot of time to reflect and listen to podcasts. And, you know, it was enough time away where I actually felt really refreshed and rejuvenated coming back. So I'm really grateful that I I got a chance to do that. That was my big vacation for the year, pretty much. But all of this has been happening over the last two months. I've also been to several conferences for the business and I knew that these last two months were going to be the busiest of the year, and hopefully I'll have a little bit more time trying to balance all these things as we finish out the last half of the year. I also feel like I'm starting a new story again, a little bit, maybe. <laughs> as I've been doing the podcast over the past year and a half, my state of mind towards things that happened in the past, it, I mean, it's really shifted since I started this for sure. So, so much of what I went through while CXG aired is... A different place than i'm in now but i still think it's helpful to work through that and tie the two together and it's become a part of the story i'm telling now from a creative standpoint it's also stuff that i sort of shoved down and and didn't deal with as much as i could have after writing about it in the journal and coming back to it now with a little bit more objective eyes and a fresh perspective. I've found it's helpful and I'm making some connections that I didn't make before. And hopefully you guys will continue to see me heal over time. The truth of the matter is the cheetah story is only one small piece of a much larger picture, such as my best friend Daisy dying, and there was a soap opera story that happened with my other best friend and ex-partner, Lotus, that I haven't shared here. And all of these things happened over the course of a few years. I had a ton of people die while all of the drama was going on. and it's just it was a lot but very slowly new topics opportunities and people have started to come into my life and i've been trying to build off that and i have to say this cxg fandom has been half of that i've made some really good friends in the fandom everybody online has been so nice and i hope we can still kind of keep talking to each other i i will miss it i'm excited to see people at concerts again so Having and knowing people who are tapped into mental health and who care about each other and understand what we're all going through is has really been helpful, and I really appreciate it and i and I'm just grateful for all the support we've we've given each other. I've also met some new friends at conferences, and I definitely feel like I might be beginning something new now. It's still kind of playing the long game, but There's been a a few little signs in the wind and, you know, I feel like it's picking up again. You know, maybe I'm just starting another Rebecca story, but hopefully it will be a healthy one with well thought out decisions and better opportunities. So with that in mind, I'm going to give you a journal excerpt from part of the cheetah story and this is always the piece of my story that reminds me of the you stupid bitch moment and how rebecca felt when josh walked out the door unfortunately my story did not go in the same order as rebecca's so we are jumping forward nearly three years from where i left off last time when cheetah my josh chan and i confessed having feelings for each other in the car and a lot changed in those three years more than i can get into here although there'll probably be plenty of other stories about that time in future episodes Chita and I had a full-fledged understanding for a long time by this point, and he'd just broken up with catnip, my Valencia, finally, a couple months before this, but he still hadn't told her he wanted to be with me. So just keep in mind that I'd been in limbo with him for almost three years at this stage, and it was psychologically breaking me down, especially since I couldn't talk to anyone in our mutual friend group about it. The ironic thing is Rebecca's stupid bitch moment stemmed from deception, whereas mine stemmed from telling the truth. Here's the moment and the reasons why I spontaneously cracked and told Catnip that Chita and I had feelings for each other. If you'll recall, Catnip had ended up in a ridiculously similar situation with another guy in our group, who we'll call Shadow. Shadow had just separated from his wife, who was also part of our group but they were still married, going through the divorce process and living together temporarily until they sorted everything out. He and Catnip had gotten into a relationship after they both split with their significant others and they were really happy and compatible together. They even started telling all of our mutual friends and for the most part were met with support. I'd already been waiting three years for Cheetah and I to do the same thing. About Shadow, Catnip said to me, I just think that it's ridiculously lucky that we both separated before we started chatting and liking each other. And that's exactly what she was, lucky. They could have easily discovered feelings for each other while they were still with their partners. They just got lucky. But the first time she met Shadow was actually at his wedding. Just like the first time I met Cheetah, he was on his first date with Catnip. You can't make this stuff up. So in the journal, I say, I'm just astounded that, of all things, Catnip finds herself in a situation that closely parallels mine with Cheetah, so she'll have new insights into how it feels to be that person. Hopefully that will help her understand when we do finally get to tell her. Catnip knows something incredibly stressful is going on with me now. She asked if she could be my housemate when she moved out of the condo she shares with Cheetah, and I had to explain to her that I was waiting on a situation and couldn't commit to new housemates right then. I wasn't sure what else to say. She deduced that I was dealing with a potential partner of romantic interest, and became obsessed with finding out who it was, wanting me to tell her. So these journal excerpts, they're kind of coming from a period of a couple months, and I've just kind of pulled out relevant bits of the conversation. First, this is what I said to Catnip on why I couldn't talk to her about my romantic situation. I said, being demisexual, I could obliterate what could be my one chance to have a relationship in my 30s, and I already missed having a boyfriend in my 20s, so I don't really want to do that. Some of the complications are incredibly magnified because of me being demi. I've really actively tried to find other options, went on dates with 12 guys, searched thousands of online profiles all over the world. I just can't seem to make myself feel something I don't feel, or not feel something I do feel. Catnip said to me, if it's someone I know, the only reason I will give him shit is for making it secret and taking this long. I don't care if it's Cheetah at this point, if he's in a relationship, I won't judge at all, except that I want you together. And if it's someone I like or know, I'll be like, you idiot, you missed so many times you could have been hanging out with us. Shadow and I is pretty weird and out of left field, she said. If it's someone I know and there's baggage there, I have no right to be mad, shocked, or surprised. Famous last words she guessed a lot of other people it could be in between here but more than once catnip floated the idea of it being cheetah so another time she says is it cheetah lol i can't think of any recent breakups i wanted to stay friends with cheetah i suppose this would be an easy way but i would be confused as hell that you guys liked each other that much you know i'm head over heels for shadow so i guess i would feel good with you and cheetah lol but that seems improbable too just feel free to tell him what i've said if it would help you to talk to me Maybe he could be convinced. Then, on a different day, Catnip said, I'm beginning to really think it's Cheetah. That would be so interesting. So after that exchange, I thought we had the start of an understanding. Catnip was so casual, accepting, and supportive of it. It didn't freak her out. She didn't say I'd be so pissed. She just thought it would be interesting. She even gave me a thumbs up. She was way more focused on Shadow. I was emotional and anxious about Cheetah for other reasons during that time. And his catnip continued to press me, who it could possibly be, and was supremely supportive of it, regardless of the situation. After a couple of days of talking with her, I decided to tell her I couldn't hold it in any longer. I couldn't stand to be in my own skin or feel like this for another second. There were times when the group would be having dinner and I'd just break down in tears. I'd also asked Cheetah for months when he thought we should tell her, and he wouldn't give me a straight answer or a deadline. It made me worry that I'd be waiting another two and a half years the same amount of time I had to wait for him to break up with her due to his fear of her reaction. Catnip and I sat down to talk in person. We chatted about Shadow a little, and then Catnip went, Okay, tell me, is it Cheetah? I just nodded and started crying. What? Really? Catnip was surprised, but still supportive and curious. She even graphically explained that their sexual preferences didn't match up at all. Katnip wanted to know how it all started, and mentioned that she remembered Cheetah and I had a really long talk in a car once. I was surprised she actually remembered this, since she seemed barely aware of it at the time. I told her that was when we accidentally found out we had feelings for each other. Katnip thought that was a long time ago. I'm not even crying, Katnip exclaimed. I told her that I wanted to tell her about her feelings right away, but Cheetah couldn't make up his mind what to do at first. He also said that Katnip threatened to commit suicide if he ever left her he's right about that actually she said if you guys had come up to me and said you had feelings for each other back then it would have been bad i'm so grateful you told me she said emphatically at least you care enough about me to do that i'm not mad at you at all but i'm a little mad at cheetah because i feel like he lied by omission catnip did come to the point where she said that she would love for the four of us to hang out in person her shadow cheetah and me She said maybe Shadow could have his arm around her and Cheetah could have his arm around me and we could all just stay really close friends. I was very supportive of Cheetah talking to her again and said truthfully that I hope they can stay friends. I said I felt like Cheetah was capable of being a good friend to her, just not capable of being good to her in a relationship. Catnip agreed and said the best thing about Cheetah was talking to him or having a conversation, which they can do as friends. Catnip told me, Cheetah always talks about how hot you are and how everyone likes you, but all the while he liked you, she added. She said that he'd make fun of two of our other guy friends for liking me and would put them down. Cheetah would always point out all the people that liked me and Catnip finally put it together that he might have been jealous or possessive or whatever. We hugged and cried and I told her about skipping two conventions that I really wanted to go to back when Catnip and Cheetah were still together because I felt like that should just be their time, so I boycotted. We left on an emotional but supportive note, basically the best reaction I could hope for all considering. Before and after, I said that he would probably be angry I told her, at least at first, and it might ruin any chances I had of being his girlfriend, but I was trying to balance his needs and her needs as best I could. She promised not to say anything until he was ready to talk about it. Catnip even said that she knows I never like anyone, so Cheetah must be important to me. I made myself super vulnerable, and I don't even know why. I was so emotional. Normally, I'm more logical than that. But I felt like it wasn't fair for her to not know. And it seemed like telling Catnip when she had shadow and had just gone through a taboo situation that she felt awkward and guilty about herself might be the best time. After all, she and Cheetah had been broken up for a few months. But then later, I felt horrible about Cheetah because I'm the most loyal person to him ever. But this might make him not feel that way. That didn't even occur to me until afterwards, because my intentions were good. I thought I was helping, that he could come back from his trip and I'd have already taken care of one of his big fears or worries. The next day, everything changed. All of a sudden, catnip started bitching me out through private message, and I have never, ever, ever seen her like this. It was a complete 180. I had no idea she was even capable of saying the things that she said. I was totally thrown. If she acted like this from the beginning, that's one thing, but the switch confused me. I stayed calm and told her it was okay if she got angry with me, that we both love her and wanted to prevent her from getting hurt, but we knew that no matter what, she'd be hurt in some way. I let her ask me questions and I answered them clearly, without ever lashing out at her or saying anything sarcastic. I just tried to reiterate that neither Cheetah nor I wanted to lose her friendship, and we weren't sure what to do in the situation." Catnip then said that she wanted us to tell her right away, and I told her I wanted that too, but Cheetah thought it was a bad idea, and because it was his relationship, I felt like I couldn't interfere, since it would just look like I was trying to break them up. And even if Catnip wasn't mad, Cheetah would be mad, and I couldn't risk losing him. When Catnip talked about keeping it secret, I said, That's why I tried to distance myself from you for a while. I didn't feel comfortable being your friend in that position. I wanted to be your friend but didn't know if you'd want to be my friend if you knew I had feelings. I didn't know what to do but stepping back was something I tried because I worried about the same thing that you did. I told him it was affecting our friendship. I was friends with you and close with you for years and years before I ever felt anything for him. You and I were already close and talking before that was ever an issue. At the time I stepped back I was distant from both of you and he was distant from me too. But you were really hurt by the distance, and my whole reason for doing that was to keep you from getting hurt. So I ended up giving in after a while because of that. I always wanted to do whatever the best decision was for all of us, but I had no idea what that was. So I'm not going to share the worst things she said, but just to give you a little idea, Catnip started messaging me things like, You feel so special. You get to feel like you won, and you will get to feel like you're special enough to fix him if he's a good boyfriend to you. And after everything, he still thinks he's the good guy, lol. What a psycho, and you must eat up his arrogance. He'll never apologize or feel bad or think he did anything wrong. You are shitty people, lol, but think you're so enlightened and forgiving and wonderfully nice. There's the little nod to you're a good person. She says, all you think about is how you get to come out on top, though. Both of you will feel like winners and never admit this was shit. So then I said to Catnip, I'm so confused. You and I were talking it out last night. It's okay, though, you can get angry if that's how you're feeling. If it's any consolation, I've been tortured and sick and in agony over this for a long time. I value you so much and I couldn't believe that I never like anyone and then it has to be him. I searched for anyone else that I could start a relationship with. If I weren't demisexual, perhaps I would have been able to move on because I liked someone else. I don't feel special and it was never ever about winning. I don't feel like I've won in any way. You said that you would be all right with it being cheetah, so I went based on what you were telling me. I didn't know if you were ready to hear it, but you really wanted me to talk to you, and I wanted to talk with you. I'm so sorry if that was the wrong decision. I wish I knew what to do in a situation like this. In the journal, I say, So then I had another night where I sort of accidentally crashed on the couch and couldn't sleep the whole night through. I woke up at 2 in the morning, and my mind was racing so much that I was shocked when I looked at the clock again and saw it was 5.30 in the morning. I'd been up that whole time and stayed awake until I had to get ready for work at 7am. I'm so worried about losing Cheetah, and so sad that Catnip doesn't trust me. The weird thing is, despite everything, she can. I just had to get this damn thing out in the open. Now she knows what she needs to know and we've broken down that wall. Catnip started filling in the blanks for herself, making us conniving in her head as if we were conspiring against her the whole time. So I said to catnip, I know you want to attribute bad motives to everything right now, but I'm concerned that you'll start coming up with stories or possibilities and then believing they're true. I've done that in the past, been so fearful about something that I started to assume the fears I imagined were true. Catnip said, well, you'll just be perfect for him, won't you? And he'll sit around thinking about what a bitch girlfriend I was. Then she decided I was just using her. So then I replied to Catnip, I get that a lot of girls in this situation might not have had your best interest at heart or done something deliberately. I wish you could physically get inside my mind and know that I've always considered you to be a real friend and didn't do this on purpose. I know in the typical situation it's common enough for a girl to have bad intentions, so I do get why you worry that's the case. All I can do is tell you it isn't and hope that you've seen my behavior, feelings, and attitude for long enough you would know I would never be coming at it from the perspective of one of those girls. So then here's some more things I said to the journal. I can't just not talk about this hugely important part of my life. It's too damn hard for me. I broke. If I could do it all over again, I wouldn't have said anything to catnip right now. But somehow I've managed to put the most important thing in my life at risk after being so careful not to do that for years. I had an emotional couple days and had bad judgment because of it. I'm feeling normal, stoic, and logical now, but will that do any good? I genuinely believed Katnip would be alright with it, even supportive after all the things she said. I felt like she, perhaps unintentionally, tricked me. My whole body is tense. My muscles need a massage more than ever. My chest is tight and my stomach is in knots. I grit my teeth while sleeping. I barely sleep and hardly eat. I'm distraught and in agony over this, and so fearful about Cheetah. I am loyal to him with all my being, I just made a mistake. I've never made such a huge mistake before. I'm used to making good choices, making the right call. I try so hard to be good, I should have just followed his instructions on this. He was right, Catnip's got a side to her that I've never seen before, but I'm guessing Cheetah probably has. I thought I knew her well enough to gauge a reaction, but I didn't have that piece of information, so I miscalculated. She was downright vicious. Although, in general, it's really okay for her to take her anger out on me. It was hurtful, though. I came home sobbing and could barely breathe. I started to have a panic attack, highly unusual for me. My housemaid and friend hugged me and hugged me. I read her some of the messages without my friend knowing the sender was catnip, and she was horrified at what catnip said to me. I'm just freaking out, not eating, not sleeping. I've never done anything so completely irrational and stupid in my life, and I'm still not exactly sure what I was thinking. I definitely had and have good intentions. It was not for any conniving reason, and the timing didn't benefit me in any way. It might even ruin my life, knowing how volatile they both react. I think a big part of this is that catnip's hurt and jealous that Cheetah has feelings for me and has been into me when he's slowly stopped being into her. I try so hard not to make mistakes in all of this, and I make one huge mistake, question mark, for seemingly irrational or idealistic reasons, and now I feel like it might cost me everything. Why am I such an idiot? I've never done something so miscalculated before. Later on, a friend answered this for me. Because you're human, Paisley. You've been holding it together for so long, it was inevitable that you would break down. And I said, I just wish Cheetah understood that. When he can't handle something he shuts down for ages but i do the exact opposite i have to talk about it as much as he has to shut down so Katnip and i are continuing to talk over this period of weeks and eventually months and most of it is all through text or private message or writing based so during this part i kind of wanted to give her what it was like from my perspective and try to help her understand what I was going through as well and get out of her own head and kind of see that this is hard on everybody. I said Cheetah is the only new guy I've been even remotely attracted to in almost a decade. If he got angry at me for telling you and stopped being my friend or anything further, I would be the lowest I'd ever been in my life, which is saying something. After all the hell I've been through in the last couple years, in many different areas of life, and such a small chance of ever meeting anyone I'm attracted to, let alone someone who could be with me, that'd do me in. Telling you was and is a much bigger risk for me than it would be for most other people who could eventually find someone else and move on. Risking that and having it go wrong? It's essentially like sentencing myself to solitary confinement for years or allowing you to do it for me. You must be a damn good friend for me to risk something like that. It's fucking terrifying to trust someone with essentially my life, my future. Since I was 13, I've longed to have a boyfriend who really mattered to me and vice versa. If I had told my 13-year-old self that she would be past 30 and still have no idea what it would feel like to have a boyfriend, she would be horrified, devastated. It's probably good that I didn't know, because it let me walk through every day with just a little bit of hope, even if it seemed more and more unlikely. I'm not sure if you can imagine, if this was you, what that would be like, not just for a week or a year, but for this long. It kind of makes you break after a certain point. I've watched all of you in our group go through relationships. Maybe not everyone stays together, but they've all had sexual relationships with people they care about. I've been living here for over five years, and nothing's changed for me unless it got worse. I'm not saying pity me or feel sorry for me. I'm just saying that it's really, really hard. Catnip says, Cheetah's always lucky in life, and now he gets Paisley, ha, and doesn't have to change? What the heck did he do in a past life to get everything handed to him when he hands very little to anyone else? And if you'll recall, Catnip had a crush on me as well so she was kind of coming at this from both sides and I think in a way she felt like wow it's really unfair for Cheetah to end up with Paisley you know when that's something I would have liked so it was almost like going through two of these things at once so I continue to say in my journal I absolutely understand why catnip is hurt but she hasn't told me what else we could have done in that situation lately she's been insisting that Cheetah and I should have told her how we felt right away But, when we were in person, she told me that Cheetah made the right call by worrying about her being suicidal and that she would not have reacted well if we both came up to her straight afterwards and said we liked each other. From what Catnip had said, and how she's contradicted herself, it sounds like there's no good time we could have told her. There's no real way around telling her, though. We just have to plow through it until we get to the other side. And then, Catnip told Cheetah. One thing I said to him, among many, was, it's just so damn out of character. I'm so mad at myself. I've waited and waited, and it's completely idiotic that I couldn't just wait a little more when it won't be that much longer. I don't even understand myself how it happened. It's so beyond anything that's ever happened to me before. I hate the word useless, and I don't normally use it, but I really do feel stupid and useless right now. More of that stupid bitch kind of moment. Cheetah said several things back to me, and again, I'm not going to share the the worst things he said, but to get the gist of it, he basically said, Literally, all I can think about right now is how I've never been this mad at anyone in my entire life for any reason. You fucked up, and this will not end well for any of us. I can guarantee you that. Then Chita sent me a message that was almost staggeringly cruel but also made no sense at all because most of the things in it never happened. I started to wonder if Catnip was insisting he show her texts or if he was afraid that I'd screenshot something and send it to Catnip if he let anything slip. What I didn't know at the time was that he was denying he ever had feelings for me to her because he was caught off guard, panicked, and immediately went on the defensive. Catnip eventually told me, Cheetah says he pretended to like you, but really thought you were psycho and didn't want to tell you no because he was worried you would tell me and make him and I break up, but he claims he didn't like you. Yes, I know he could be lying. So I'm talking to Cheetah and ask if I can get his advice on something, and I'm wondering if he can talk openly because I'm not exactly sure what's going on and he responds she's in full fucking vengeance mode and she's had lots of practice because she's such an untrusting jealous bitch and now for the first time in her life she thinks she's been legitimately wronged she'll keep posting vague sad shit on facebook and telling people one by one what happened in the worst terms possible and probably eventually post the whole thing publicly once she thinks it'll do the most damage you genuinely have no fucking clue how bad you screwed up because you haven't even seen the full extent of it yet here's another fun fact interacting with her at all from this point will only make it worse she'll always find some nugget of what you said to focus on is the worst evil conceivable but i'm sure you'll convince yourself you know better than me again and go try to fix things or think you can be her friend again so i said to him no i appreciate your advice and i will do my best to follow it if you think it's better not to interact with her i won't i really had no idea she had it in her to be like this i shouldn't have said anything regardless but i had no idea the extent of how bad worst case scenario could be." And really, anything you're hearing about in this entry is just the beginning. We'll definitely have episodes that correspond more to um, Rebecca's scary sexy lady episode and things like that. It really turned out to be about a year of cyberbullying and many other things that happened. So this was really just the introduction to what happened overall. Katnim started a Facebook conversation with both of us and tried to say snide, bitter things about each of us to the other. Cheetah seems to care what people will think more than I do on the whole, even though outwardly he acts like he doesn't. He's also never been picked on or discredited before, not even as a kid, so this is a very new experience for him. I wrote to Cheetah, among other things. I'm sure Catnip would credit herself if all this kept us apart. That definitely falls under vengeance. I hope you don't let your ex influence who you get to be with, Hope that you don't let catnip's initial reaction affect who your next girlfriend is don't let her bully you into that by threatening your reputation if you do it's almost like she still has control over your life which was a big reason why you broke up with her in the first place i made a mistake but the reason it's an actual problem that's on her don't get me wrong i would rather she stay friends with both of us but you were right that there's this side to her that will get vicious and attribute the worst possible motives to everything and you should never have to hide or deny large parts of yourself in an attempt to keep someone's friendship. When I finally said something, I told him, it was like being underwater for longer than humans can breathe, and when you can't hold your breath any longer, you automatically pop up and break the surface. It's not a conscious decision, it's more like a reflex. I genuinely felt that psychologically it was coming out whether I wanted it to or not. It was really hard to explain it afterwards, even to myself, because it didn't make any sense to me why I said something. It took me a while to even consider that it was largely unconscious drives rearing their heads, because when you can't breathe, all you can think about is getting some air and relieving that tension. No other thoughts enter your mind, however logical and important they might be. They only rush in afterwards, when you can no longer understand why you said what you said, and feel like an entirely different person did it instead. I thought it would help ease the intolerable feelings building up inside of me, but it only made it so much worse." I keep thinking that if Daisy, my best friend, hadn't died, she would have kept me from saying something, helped me see reason when I was extra emotional. We were always in touch, kept each other updated on everything. I didn't update any friends on anything that day. It just happened. But if Daisy was still alive, I would have asked her advice first. I don't know if I'm going to be paying for one week moment forever or if you'll think it through and talk it out when you're ready so Those are some of the things I said to him. But reflecting on it now, seeing Paula in that last scene with Rebecca in today's episode, where Paula's coaching her, comforting her, encouraging her, it's like seeing what it could have been like if Daisy hadn't died and all the surprising things that affects. So after this, Cheetah started giving me the silent treatment for months. And I wrote him at one point, you know my whole backstory and how guys have treated me, and you've been my friend for so long, and I feel like How could you care about me at all to desert me at a time like this and if you actually can't handle any of this to the point that you're doing worse than me, then oh my god I'm so sorry, that's horrible. I don't think I'll ever fully believe you haven't been using me, unless you're honest or public about your feelings. I love catnip too, but I can't sacrifice my entire romantic future for her, especially when she didn't even want a sexual relationship with you. She has a happy future ahead of her and I'm glad of that, and I hope that eventually gives her some perspective." So the crazy thing about the situation, too, is he never, you know, broke up with me, essentially. He never said that we were done or that we weren't going to be boyfriend and girlfriend or that he never wanted to talk to me again. He, he never made, like, a final split. He was just mad, and then he disappeared, and then I just kind of hung out and wondered what was going on for months, which is very anxiety-inducing, and this was a an ongoing issue that Cheetah had when he couldn't deal with something. And so I was kind of in limbo wondering, like, you know, is it just done? Is it all over? Like Rebecca wondered when Josh walked out the door, you know, did she screw things up forever? Or is this something we're going to get over and move past? And I didn't know. I really didn't know where we stood. Then my cat died from bone cancer that couldn't be treated or removed because it was in his pelvis. I posted about it on Facebook and told Cheetah privately But still, he said nothing. How could he not reach out to me, even one sentence through text, when my cat died? Cheetah knows how difficult losing a pet is. He's sensitive to the bonds we can make with animals and feels that way himself. On the same day, Catnip sent the two of us more biting messages designed to pit us against each other. Catnip writes, he says you're psycho and made things up, but he doesn't want to message you to re-engage you. I told him to tell you what he's telling me, his truth, that he never liked you, He tells me that, but says he'd rather ignore your text and voicemails than tell you he never liked you. That's what she said. Of course, there's a reason why he wasn't texting me that, because it wasn't true. So, of course, we're bringing in elements of someone trying to use the crazy ex-girlfriend stereotype to dismiss the truth, but it was unclear to me whether it was Cheetah doing this or whether catnip was lying to get under my skin. So after it had been a while, you know, after it had been months of dealing with this i said to cheetah it's so inconsiderate that you haven't had a real back and forth conversation with me yet just stop talking to me and disappeared i know that's how you cope but it makes me feel completely devalued if you'd put a date on it i'll talk to you by such and such a day i wouldn't even mind as much if it helps you process but no answers until after the silent treatment is over it's too much so this of course reminds me of how josh behaved after he ditched rebecca at the wedding I really related to that a lot. I also said to Cheetah, I wish you'd be confident in your actual position, not pandering to catnips outwardly. Where's the person who put his arm around me and drove me to my house in the middle of the night to check on Lotus when I locked my keys in the car? Where's the person who didn't like the idea of his judgment keeping me from telling him about my spiritual group or other secrets? Where's the person who texts me for hours, making me laugh, initializing conversation and being a great friend? Where's the person who said he'd never stop having feelings for me, who insisted that this is something real? This is your chance to prove that you're really that person, to me, to catnip, to yourself. I wrote in the journal, cheating catnip may be angry, hurt, and stressed, but I'm the one who actually stands to be single and lonely for years and years. And I will say, that is genuinely the case. That is generally what happened as a result of not just this. There were other things that happened that we will get into later but this was the the kickoff of what put me in that position because this strained our relationship so much not because of us but because of how catnip was reacting and how she pulled the public in and really kind of sent him to pieces over it a friend of mine sent me a harry potter quote the truth dumbledore sighed it is a beautiful and terrible thing and should therefore be treated with great caution so when i hear rebecca's you stupid bitch song especially the line i was so close to paradise now the only thing i'm close to is defeat i really relate to that part in this specific circumstance it was that cheetah really did break up with catnip finally after two and a half years of us being in limbo and yet in that moment it felt like i ruined everything by telling her that we had feelings for each other right before Cheetah and I finally became boyfriend and girlfriend. I don't know if you guys remember the song Almost Lover by A Fine Frenzy, but I always related to that song because that was kind of how it went with a lot of people or relationships in my life, where you know I felt like I got as close as I possibly could get to being somebody's girlfriend without actually being asked or having it be official or whatever the case may be. And especially with the Cheetah, more than any other person, I got so close to it after we'd been through so much and had really hung in there with each other. And it almost hurts worse to get that close, as close as you possibly could without actually achieving it. You spend all this time climbing the mountain only to be pushed off the cliff when you reach the top. And it's because I'd never gotten the experience of having a regular committed official boyfriend that it was even harder to get that close and not make it. You know, like if you've won a gold medal before and you almost get another one, you might be able to deal with that. But if you've never won one and you come so close but miss, and you go home with nothing and you might never win one again, I, that, just, that just adds a, a layer to it, I think. When I hear you, stupid bitch, I also think of my other best friend, Lotus, who struggles with these types of feelings a great deal. Really, for her, that is a, a regular everyday narrative. I don't normally struggle with those types of feelings, even though I, I know a lot of people do. But that was why I didn't know how to handle them when I, you know, quote unquote, made a mistake. I questioned for a long time, you know, was it a mistake, wasn't it a mistake, did I do the right thing, did I not do the right thing, even afterwards it wasn't totally clear. I think knowing everything that I know now, I still feel like it was a mistake, but I didn't have enough information at the time to fully know that and I made an emotional decision. But FYI, this was not actually the end of Cheetah and me, though like Rebecca, I didn't know that for sure at the time.